You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Paige, the host of Reverie True Crime. I tell stories of helpless victims, vicious killers, predators watching their prey before they strike, survivors, petty crimes, people we think we know who do the unthinkable, and the dangers that lurk not only in the dead of night, but in plain sight and the light of day. Every once in a while, I'll also tell stories of the frightening paranormal, elusive cryptids, haunted locations, and conspiracies that may be silly or thought-provoking. You can listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hello. And welcome to the jury room. I'm your host, Kevin, and I will be covering anything true crime, from serial killers to cold cases and everything in between. The jury room podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow anywhere you can. Stay safe and thanks for listening. On February 1st, 2010, a man received a call that his estranged wife had fallen from an overpass in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. His wife and he had separated approximately a year before that call, and they were embroiled in an incredibly difficult divorce and custody proceeding regarding their two young children, two-year-old Connor and ten-month-old Jaden. Unfortunately, the day was going to get a lot more tragic, a lot sadder, and a lot more sinister. Hello, and welcome to Gone But Never Forgotten, The McConnell Family Tragedy. and welcome back to GBNF. We hope and trust that you and yours have all been well since we last spent time together, and we hope that you're working hard in the world around you to be a good person and do your best to ensure that all of the lives around you are better for having you in them. It's been busy times here at GBNF as we've ramped up to being a weekly show now, and that's going to take a lot more work, research, and time on our parts. But as we are seeing our listening numbers start to spike and we're getting more feedback and communication with you, our listeners, 
We felt that this was the next logical step. Ramping things up is only good for everyone involved in the show. We wanted to mention two things pertaining to the show quickly before we get started. First, please take the time to give us a like, a follow, a rating, and whatever else your podcast platform of choice will allow. Those things are the things that will benefit our metrics and get us bumped up on searches and lists so that even more people can find us and help us to grow this thing more and more. We appreciate each and every one of you and each and every interaction that we get. We also really want to ask you guys for your support. As most people know, being a creator is a lot of work and something that you can really only do if it's a passion. It comes with all sorts of expenses, but we are always happy to do this. With that said, there are many ways that you can help us out. First and foremost, we have our Patreon page and our Patreon supporters. I want to take a moment to again shout out our long-term supporters, Michelle and Stacy, who have been with us for quite some time now. We have different tiers for supporting us. They start at $1.50 a month and top out at $10 a month, and each level comes with some really cool perks. Yes, if you like GBNF, please consider going to patreon.com forward slash GBNF podcast and becoming one of our listeners, supporters, obsessors, or partners. You can also check out our store at tpublic.com, which can be found on our link tree on any of our social media pages to purchase some merch. And finally, if you can't be bothered with the bells and whistles of figuring out where to go or how to help, but would like to do a one-time donation to help the show, you can do so through either PayPal or internet transfers to our email address, gbnfpod at gmail.com. I think that's enough shilling for one episode, though. What do you say we get down to what we came here for? It's true crime time. Alison Meager was born in November of 1978 in Gosford, New South Wales in Australia. She would reveal later on in life that she believed that a major part of her life was the fact that she was raped as a 15-year-old girl by her father and that the rape led to her having a miscarried pregnancy. Not a lot is known about her upbringing, but what we do know is this. Her parents divorced after revelations came out that her father had raped her sister. Allison would suffer greatly through life with mental health issues and depression, and she in fact had tried to take her own life multiple times. She also had experienced multiple miscarriages, which is obviously an incredible trigger for such things as the depression that she suffered from. Allison would wind up in Canada as she tried to find hope, happiness, and life outside of her home in Australia. As I've mentioned many times on this show, I understand fully the need and desire at times to move elsewhere and try to build or rebuild your life as through much of my younger years, I did exactly that. Sometimes the grass looks greener on the other side, as the old saying goes, but sometimes all one needs to do to get a fresh start and perspective is to literally do just that. Find a fresh place to start and a new life to put together. In 2006, when Allison was working at the Delta Ski Resort in Kamloops, British Columbia, she would meet the man that was to become her future husband, Curtis McConnell. Curtis was from Alberta, Canada, 
and Allison was on a working holiday. The two seemed to be destined for one another. Allison seemed to be settling into a level of happiness as she and Curtis grew to know one another, date one another, and then eventually move in together. Not long after the two were married in Australia, in January of 2007, she changed her name to Allison McConnell, and they moved to Curtis's hometown in Millet, Alberta, which is approximately 50 kilometers south of Edmonton. It appeared that the two were living the perfect life. The couple even welcomed two lovely little boys into this world. Connor came first, being born in July of 2007 in Australia, and then in 2009, Jaden was born. To everyone looking from the outside in, everything appeared to be blissful and perfect. There were plenty of photos to be shown around of the family posing in all sorts of different settings on holidays, vacations, and day trips. The two appeared to have put together the perfect life, the perfect combination of family life, work, and looking to the future. Allison was working for an oil company in Alberta, and Curtis worked in a hardware store. Unfortunately, though, sometimes things are not always as they seem. No, and it would appear that inside of the four walls of that family house, things were starting to become unraveled. After Jaden's birth in March 2009, things started and continued to get worse for the family, it would seem. Not long before Christmas in 2009, just months after the birth of Jaden, Curtis started to sleep on his own in the basement of the house, very segregated from the rest of the family. I think that it goes without saying that in most cases, when you see a husband and wife start to sleep and live separately like this, it is not a promising sign for the future. That much is for sure. Obviously, there is no judgment here, but a step like this really shows a lot of strain in most cases and really leads to either reconciliation after taking some space or leads to worse things. Sadly, in this case, it led to a slippery slope of worse things. As one can imagine, when someone has a history of depression, Allison did not find herself in a good place as their marriage deteriorated and there are many reports that she started to slip more and more into a place of depression, heartbreak, and rash decisions. Unfortunately, the arrangement with Curtis living in the basement didn't appear to work either. And in December of 2009, he officially filed for divorce and left the family home to live with his parents. At first, things seemed as though they would make an amicable dynamic between Curtis, Allison, and Curtis's parents, and that things may in fact work out best for everyone involved, especially young Jaden and Connor. But unfortunately, that was not to work out in the long term. As anyone who has gone through or knows about divorce proceedings, they can get pretty costly and pretty messy, especially when there are children involved. This case would not stray from that possibility, and the two entered into a custody dispute. This case, however, was muddied even more than usual. This was not just parents going to court to decide which parent would have custody versus visitation rights. Allison had made the decision that not only did she want custody of the children, but she wanted to take them back with her to Australia. Curtis, obviously, was staunchly against that and wanted his sons to remain with him in Canada. 
In the end, a judge would rule in Curtis's favor, saying that the boys would remain in Canada. Obviously, this caused even more tension and problems between Curtis and Allison, as she now was forced to stay in Canada, against what she wanted, or risk not seeing her boys ever again. One can only imagine how real and awful these court proceedings likely were. When there are issues that lead to lengthy and often messy legal proceedings, disdain really can only grow as the pain grows and the fights drag on. Luckily, I haven't ever been close by as a family went through this, and I really do count my lucky stars. The horror stories that you hear really can help someone understand why maybe marriage isn't always the best way to go anymore. But I feel like that's a whole other episode for a whole different podcast. But let me just say now, I am happily married. You bet you are. Things all came to a head on February 1st, 2010, when Curtis would receive a phone call from a police officer in Edmonton, Alberta. Remember, that was about 50 kilometers away from home. The police officer would let Curtis know that Allison had fallen off of a bridge and onto a road. She had survived, but was in the hospital. Of course, Curtis's first thought at that point was of his children. He needed to know where they were, what they were doing, and then he could worry about Allison. He asked police to see if they could get answers from Allison, and in the meantime, he decided to drive to their house to check there. While Curtis was en route to the house, he received a second call from police officers to let him know that Allison had assured them that the children were safe and at home being cared for by someone else. When Curtis pulled up to the family home, it was 3.30 p.m. He walked into a house where the television was blaring and all of the lights were on. Curtis quickly realized, though, that there was not anyone home. Curtis first checked in on his two-year-old son Connor's room. He remembers it being dark. Then he went to the other bedroom of his 10-month-old son Jaden, and his bed was also empty. Curtis then realized that the door to the bathroom was locked, which he knew was strange because Connor was being potty trained. He knew that he needed to find a way to get the door opened, and he found a knife that he used to jimmy the lock open. What he saw inside would destroy anyone. Inside of the bathroom, Curtis would find both of his boys in the bathtub. Curtis removed both of them from the tub and then ran to a neighbor's home. He told the neighbor that the boys were dead. He told the neighbor that he could not look at his kids, but they were dead, and he knew that it was Allison that had killed them. What Curtis had walked into was a room with his two dead children in a bathtub. He said that when he reached into the tub, the water was so cold. He would later tell the courtroom that she had just left them there to rot. On the toilet seat next to the bath was Allison's wedding ring. I honestly cannot even imagine. Death is something that we all know is an inevitability, but we never think that we'll outlive our children, and we certainly are never prepared for anything like what this poor man walked into that day. Allison would be arrested and charged for the murders of her two young sons. A forensic computer analyst would later state that police found internet searches on the computer at the home that had searches back to January 13, 2010 for things like how long does it take to drown and how long does it take to die from strangulation. 
The boy's funeral would be held five days after their bodies were found. Hundreds of people would attend their funeral, and Curtis would say things better than I ever could hear. So I am going to quote part of his eulogy. Quote, As every parent knows, the most pure thing is a child's love. When they put their head down on you, it's so wonderful, so strong. I'm going to miss them. The pain is so strong, but I wouldn't trade one memory away, no matter the pain. The memories are all so filled with joy. Such strong words and such heartbreaking words. I cannot even imagine what this would be like to go through, to have two young children just taken away like this. But there is so much strength in those words. At the funeral, Allison's name was not mentioned and she was not present. It was not public knowledge at that point that Allison had murdered her two sons, but it was pretty widely expected. She survived her suicide attempt jumping off the bridge, and she claimed to have no memory of the bridge or what happened with her children. After she was released from the hospital, she was moved to psychiatric care at Alberta Hospital Edmonton, where she would stay for 15 months. This week's episode is sponsored in part by Creations from the Heart. Donna is a metalsmith who specializes in saw-pierced pieces, jewelry and decorative pieces, and saw-pierced nature scenes on stones. She does amazing work and is able to design and create whatever you can put your mind to, and as such is very open to custom orders. I can personally vouch for her work as she has designed a dragon pendant piece for my chain and also created a new wedding ring for me. Her work is professional, the turnaround is quick, and I cannot stress enough how creative and high quality her work is. I also have one of Donna's Tree of Life pendants and absolutely adore her work. You can purchase Donna's work directly or request custom work by searching Creations from the Heart on Etsy, Facebook, or Instagram. I cannot stress enough that the heart in all of her sites is H-A-R-T. Next time you're looking for a -a one-of-a-kind gift for yourself or someone that you love and want professional quality without the boutique price, get in touch with Creations from the Heart and you will not be disappointed. In 2012, Allison would finally go to trial. She had admitted that she had drowned her sons, but she still claimed to have no recollection of it. The end result was that she would be convicted of manslaughter. Justice Michelle Crichton stated that there was not sufficient evidence to prove intent, and as such, the courts could not find Allison guilty of a murder charge. The grounds noted were that Allison did not remember the crime and she was also clinically depressed. In Canada, first-degree murder is a culpable homicide that is planned and deliberate. Both of those aspects must be present for a first-degree murder charge. A first-degree murder charge carries an automatic life sentence with no chance for parole for 25 years. Second-degree murder is a deliberate killing carried out without planning. The minimum sentence is 10 years with no parole, but can also match the life sentence with 25 years of no parole. Manslaughter is a homicide committed without the intention to cause death, 
Although there may have been an intention to cause harm. All of this to say, Allison would be found guilty, as Julie said, of manslaughter only. The reason it explained a little better is because they could not prove or disprove that there was intent to kill on the part of Allison because she was mentally unwell and also because without her being able to talk about the incident because she didn't remember it, they could not find out if this was a heat-of-the-moment action or something she had planned to do. In court, asked by her lawyer if she had drowned Connor and Jaden, her response was, It is my understanding. When asked if she remembers doing it, she said, I do not. Giving Allison some benefit of the doubt, her testimony seemed to show a woman who was having significant mental health issues. Even when she was asked her age on the witness stand, her answer was, I'm 33 years old, I believe. I haven't kept track of it recently. I know that we're all pretty much taught that the only mindset to have is murderer bad, victim good. But I can't help but find myself having a little bit of empathy here for Allison also. If we do just accept everything that she shared about her family and her past life, what you have is a woman who was likely failed by the system. She had depression. She was molested by her father. She had a hard life also. She tried many times to take her own life. She would even state at the trial that she never thought of hurting the boys, only herself. I know that this could have been words coming from her mouth that didn't have truth, but I think that there's enough of a track record here to say that Allison needed help. None of that, though, is to say that she should be excused of her crimes and actions, either. I just find myself being able to see people as people. Also, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. And also, I think it's not necessarily just about murderer bad or victim good. It's just about sad situations, tragic situations. You know, like it's sad for the children. It's sad for the family. It's sad for Allison. You know, even people that are like, you know, mur serial murderers or whatever. It's There's still a level of sadness that they have that mental capability to do those things like what happened there you know so same with Allison it's almost like you know how did this all come to be you know she had a history of things happening but something you know there was something that made her choose to do this and that in itself is just very very sad yeah I think I've said it a few times but like one of the reasons that I'm really into true crime is I love psychology um, so for me, it's like, yeah, like I wish that I could talk to this person. I wish that I could talk to many people in our cases because it's like I just want to understand what was going through their mind. And I can't get enough of the psychology behind um, anyone who commits murder or any of these crimes that we talk about. Yeah, I think out of all the episodes we've done, I mean, they're all sad, but this one like hurts my heart a little bit more because like it's a mom and I'm a mom. So I can't imagine the level of pain or mental distress that she was in that she thought she had to do that, you know, or she, she didn't mean to, but ended up doing. Yeah, for sure. Like I can definitely understand that. Like that's definitely a situation where you can put yourself in her shoes. Absolutely. Yeah. Originally, Allison was sentenced to six years in prison 
but her sentence was shockingly changed to a sentence of 15 months of confinement, which meant that she was given a sentence of time served for her time at the psychiatric hospital. Instead of being imprisoned, Allison was being released and scheduled for deportation to Australia. With that change to sentence and schedule for deportation, an entirely new fight began. The Alberta government tried to block Allison's deportation and the fight was on to try and get a new trial because many levels of government and the Alberta Minister of Justice, Jonathan Dennis, said that the sentence was too light and he said that he would do everything he could to have Allison return to Canada for another trial. But all of that was not to be. Allison was deported back to Australia on April 10, 2013. Prosecutors, for their part, did try their best to have Allison return to Canada, and there was an appeal scheduled for October 30th of that year. But in September of 2013, a person would find a body under the Brian McGowan Bridge in West Gosford, New South Wales, Australia. Her lawyer, Peter Royal, stated publicly that Allison had indeed committed suicide. Alberta Deputy Premier Thomas Lukasuk posted a tweet that I think sums up my thoughts on this case quite well. Quote, sad end to what already was a tragedy, unquote. Yes, this is an incredibly sad story all around. Yeah, this one hits me in the feels a whole bunch. This was a story that was actually brought to me by a friend who knows Curtis personally. So I guess I can say I'm a degree of separation away. But this was a story that I think I only vaguely knew about. I'm pretty sure I remember hearing about the story when it took place. I just don't think that I ever did a deep dive into it really. My heart goes out to everyone here, members of both families. Um, There's just a whole lot of heartbreak. Um, well, do you have any other thoughts that you want to share, Julie? Uh, I mean, I have lots of thoughts on this one, but I think, you know, usually in our episodes, like we don't like to focus too much on like the killer or, you know, the person that is causing the crime. Um, but in this case, I feel like she was also a victim, um, of not just herself, but of mental illness, you know, because she did end up taking her own life. I do want to focus a lot on the fact that two young boys were taken from this earth much too soon. And I do hope that, you know, with this podcast and, and even the families that everyone can remember those children, not necessarily for what happened to them, but for like the dad said, the light and the love that they brought. Um, but I think really this one is, like you said, it's kind of hard and sad because like how many people do we know that have mental illness you know and I think this is just another reminder that like you need to speak up if you have something going on speak up don't be embarrassed Um, and if you know somebody like don't just brush it off you know like to you it might not be a big deal that they're talking about suicide or this or that maybe they're joking about it but maybe they're not you know, so I don't know. This one's just really sad because A, kids, you know, I hate I hate when kids go too soon. But also, you know, suicide is just, it's so tragic. I can't, like, I don't even have enough words. It's tragic. Yeah, um, I'm glad you started to segue out there a bit. Like, I don't want to talk about Allison anymore. I mean, I shared, I think we both shared that, like, you know, we feel there that there's a lot going on. But I mean lost in all of this like it is a short story and a short episode because there's not a lot of information on it 
but I felt that it was a story to tell. And like Curtis, I mean, how can we not talk about Curtis? Like, yeah, this guy went from having an entire family to being the only left member of his family. Yeah, you know, like, and to me, it's like, you know, we've shared like Matthew is is my stepson, and it's like. I can't imagine walking in on that scene that he walked in on that day at all. Um, Even anything remotely close to it. So my heart goes out to him more than anyone. I mean, like this, this poor guy is living with this set of circumstances to this day and will probably relive it for the rest of his life, you know? And like you said, two very, very, very young lives were taken away. Like, two and ten months old like they weren't even potty trained yet yeah it's so sad and honestly like i just think what a strong man to you know stand at the funeral like a he had no like spouse or girlfriend or anybody like that with him um he just stood up there on his own and said what he had to say about his sons um and those really are true strong words coming from a strong man trying to just look at the positives of, mm-hmm. you know, the memories he had in the short time with his children. And I think, you know, I don't know what kind of father he was, but just by those words alone, I feel like he must have been at least trying to be a good father in their lives. For sure. Like, I think from everything that I read when researching, like, you know, Curtis didn't seem to have as much of a troubled past and stuff like that. And he really wanted what was best for his kids so yeah this one this one sucks a lot yeah you know not to say that every case we cover pretty much doesn't suck a lot it's true i don't know there's just something different about this one there's something different about kids yeah but i do want to just like requote what curtis said because i think it just it's so strong is he said and i quote the pain is so strong but I wouldn't trade one memory away, no matter the pain. The memories are so filled with joy, unquote. Like, isn't that so powerful? Yeah, I think that's a good place. Yeah, so I guess that's where we'll call this episode, I think. So until next week, goners, be safe, be friendly, and do all that you can to make the world a better place. And don't be an asshat.